Welcome to the John Mark Homer Teachings Podcast by Practicing the Way. This teaching was originally given at Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon, as a part of the Gospel of Matthew series. Um, if you missed last weekend, please go back and listen to the podcast. We are at the end of Matthew chapter 5, working through the Sermon on the Mount, and we're in a, this is part two of a multi-week conversation around all that Jesus has to say on nonviolence and enemy love, some of his most countercultural and disorienting for a lot of people and jarring ideas, and there's just a lot to think through. So if you were not here, please go back, listen. That was kind of the basis for everything that we do tonight and uh, in the podcast in the next couple of weeks. That said, Matthew chapter five, before we read the next teaching of Jesus, just take a moment, if you want, close your eyes, and imagine that you are a first century Hebrew. You live uh, in, say, Capernaum, or Bethsaida, or a village up on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee in a militarized zone. Everywhere you go, there are Roman legionnaires on the street. It's been 70 years since the Romans invaded. They are wreaking havoc on your society. Taxes are upwards of 80 or 90%. The economy is in crisis. Food is scarce. You are living hand to mouth. The Romans are stealing real estate right and left from your parents, your grandparents, your great-grandparents. On a daily basis, somebody in your village comes up against the oppression of the Roman Empire, whether it is physical oppression or psychological oppression. So rebellion is simmering right under the surface. You just had one of your friends join the Sicarii, a group of, quote, dagger men, that's what that word means, who sneak up on the Roman legionnaires in a crowd or a back alley, slit their throat, and then disappear. Another friend joined a new group, the Zealots, which are more like an insurgency, working with guerrilla tactics. They get their name from the zeal of Phineas and Exodus, who killed thousands in the name of the Lord. The Bible that you grew up hearing your rabbi read from at synagogue every Saturday is full of stories about war and violence. You grew up hearing stories about how God saved your ancestors from the Egyptian oppressor and then the Babylonian oppressor and the Assyrian oppressor and so on. But where is your God now? That same Bible holds out the promise of a coming Messiah and prophecy after prophecy from Isaiah, from Jeremiah, from Micah of a, a king, that's what that word Messiah means, who will rule not only over Israel but over the whole world and in doing so usher in an age of peace and prosperity. But it's been hundreds of years and he has yet to make an appearance. Then every few decades, a would-be Messiah comes on the scene but it's always the same cycle. They rally an army, weaponize, go to war, and are crushed by the Romans. The last time Rome crucified 6,000 of your fellow Jews on the road leading up to Jerusalem, and a chill runs down your spine just thinking about it. But then you hear that there's a new rabbi, a new teacher who's coming to town. They call him Jesus from the town of Nazareth, which isn't that far away. And uh, all sorts of like theories about who this guy is. Some people even think he is the Messiah. You're skeptical, you don't know about that. But you go to just hear him out. You show up, there's thousands of people there. He's up on the side of this hill, kind of the Sea of Galilee is down below you, and he starts to teach. Some of what he's saying you've heard before from people that are really serious about the Torah, but a lot of what he's saying is brand new information for you. And at first you find it so compelling but then he starts to talk about nonviolence, and that's like, that makes you really uncomfortable. And then he says this, Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
Let me lay out another scenario for you from more recent memory. August 9th, 1945, Nagasaki, Japan. A silver glimmer up in the blue sky, an American B-29 bomber drops the second atomic bomb. An estimated 75,000 people are killed in the blast and another 75,000 soon after. You know that. What you may or may not know is that the bomber pilot was himself a Christian. He was a Catholic. And Nagasaki was the epicenter of Catholicism and the church in general in Japan. It was the one city that survived the Japanese persecution of the church, if you saw silence. And it had become the epicenter of the church in Japan. The dream from church leaders was to plant churches all over Japan, out of Nagasaki, all over Southeast Asia, for that matter. In the center of the city was the Yurikami Cathedral, home to hundreds of nuns and priests. And it was ground zero for the bomb. Some people even think of the bombardier used it to sight his payload. 10,000 Christians died that day, and the church in Japan has never recovered. To this day, less than 1% of the nation is Christian. It's one of the least Christianized countries in the world. And can you blame them? Years later, Father George Zabelka, the Catholic chaplain, think about this for a minute, gave communion to the B-29 crew before its mission. Later, came back around and repented for his part in it, and he said this, and this is, I just forewarn you, this is a loaded statement, but I want to read it to you. Quote, to fail to speak to the utter moral corruption of the mass destruction of civilians was to fail as a Christian and a priest, as I see it. I was there, and I'll tell you that the operational moral atmosphere in the church in relation to mass bombing of enemy civilians was totally indifferent, silent, and corrupt at best. At worst, it was religiously supportive of those activities by blessing those who did them. Catholics dropped the A-bomb on top of the largest and first Catholic city in Japan. One would have thought that I, as a Catholic priest, would have spoken out against the atomic bombing of nuns. Three orders of Catholic sisters were destroyed in Nagasaki that day. One would have thought that I would have suggested that as a minimum standard of Catholic morality, Catholics shouldn't bomb Catholic children. I didn't. I, like the Catholic pilot of the Nagasaki plane, the great artiste, was heir to a Christianity that for 1,700 years engaged in revenge, murder, torture, the pursuit of power, and violence, all in the name of our Lord. I walked through the ruins of Nagasaki right after the war and visited the place where once stood the Yurikami Cathedral. I picked up a piece of censor from the rebel. When I look at it today, I pray God forgives us for how we have distorted Christ's teachings and destroyed his world by the distortion of that teaching. I was the Catholic chaplain who was there when this grotesque process that began with Constantine reached its lowest point so far. Now, I get that World War II is far from simple, it's very complex, Whatever you think about the bomb, that's not even my point for right now. Still, when Christians drop atomic bombs on other Christians, and in doing so, kill hundreds of thousands of innocent civilians, and very few people back home even have a problem with it, something has gone seriously wrong in our readings of Jesus' teaching. How, how do we get from in the West, because this is for the most part a Western thing, not a global historic thing, how do we get from love your enemy to Nagasaki? Well, that is a long story. Short version is we lost sight of the way of Jesus. So because there's so much that is at stake, let's work through Jesus' teaching line by line. 43, you have heard that it was said, quote, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now we all recognize the first part of that quote, right? That is from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, but that's not why you recognize it. Leviticus isn't exactly at the top of most of our reading list. You recognize it because more than once, Jesus said that the greatest command in all of the Bible is, and he would quote Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God with what? All your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And then his little follow-up was, and the second is like it, and he would quote Leviticus 19, 18. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love 
for God and for your neighbor was central to Jesus' vision of how to be human. That's why it's the last of six examples. Have you been tracking through the Sermon on the Mount? We're in chapter five. Jesus lays out six examples of the way. And this one is last. He saves the best for last. It's like it's the climax of the whole thing. It's all about love. But notice that the command is to love your neighbor, which of course raises a very interesting question. Who is my neighbor? And Jesus would regularly have people ask him this. What's your interpretation of neighbor? Because a lot's at stake. How would you answer that question? Um, The person next door, everybody in your apartment complex, your condo tower, your circle of friends, your family, other Portlanders, other Americans. Most people in Jesus' day said, well, it's other Jewish people that I live by and I like. That was kind of the working definition of neighbor. Anybody get what I'm saying? Um, Hence the second half of the quote, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now the odds are you don't recognize that second part. That's because it's not in the Bible. So for those of you that are like, really, that's in the Bible too? No, don't worry, we we get to sit this one out. It's not in there, read Genesis to Malachi this coming week just for fun in your free time and look for it, it's not there. The leading theory is that it had become a Jewish idiom. It had kind of worked its way into first century lingo. People would say things like, oh, you know, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, does Jesus think that is the right way to read or to interpret Leviticus 19, 18? Absolutely not, 44. But I tell you, and remember that's a little verbal formula. You've heard it said, but I tell you that a rabbi would use that basically meant, hey, you think a command means this, actually it means this. I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, if you go back and read Leviticus 19, 18 in context, if you just want to nerd out and do that, it's actually all about how to make peace with people you don't get along with. So I don't have time to read the whole chapter to you, which is actually beautiful. If you back up one verse, check it out. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. This is about hate. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so that you will not share in their guilt. Like just hash it out with the person. Is that like ring a bell of what Jesus just said earlier in chapter five? Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but there it is. Love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So in context, love your neighbor isn't this like kind of tweet or bumper sticker, nice little slogan, love your neighbor as yourself. In context, it's about how to make an enemy into a neighbor through the medium of love. Jesus, think about this, Jesus' interpretation of Leviticus 19.18 and the command, love your neighbor, is, quote, love your enemy. Now, the word for enemy is ekthron in Greek. Can you say that? Yes. It is a wide, sweeping word that means any and all people you don't get along with, in the language of one scholar I read. It's kind of like a lot of people. So it's everybody from personal enemies John Mark's enemy or your enemy to political enemies, meaning an enemy of America or of Western civilization or of Christianity or whatever. And in fact, there's a subtle shift in verse 43, it's love your enemy, singular, but then in verse 44 with Jesus, I'm sorry, it's hate your enemy, singular, but then in verse 44 with Jesus, it's love your enemies, plural. As if Jesus is saying, okay, you need to love all of your enemies. It's fascinating how people, I grew up, I've been around the church for a long time. It's fascinating to me how people bend over backwards to cut Jesus' teachings down to size. So some people you hear on this one wanna make it only about personal enemies. So this is about your coworker that you're like crossways with, or it's about a boss, or it's about a friend you don't like anymore, or whatever, but it has nothing to say to America, or the industrial military complex, or war, nothing to say to that, nothing at a political level which of course no first century Jew would have ever read it that way. Like you say, love your enemies. If you're a first century Jew, imagine if you're like French living in Nazi occupied you know, Paris in 1942 or whatever. Like the first thing that comes to your mind is the Roman, right? The Roman legionnaire, the Roman empire. But then on the other side, and this is really weird, you have all sorts of people that wanna make it about political enemies but not personal enemies. So it has all sorts of things to say about our government and how messed up our world is and this, that, and just worth theory. But you know, I'm, on, I'm a social activist for nonviolence and I'm on marriage number three and I have a string of broken relationships behind me and I don't think it actually says anything about that. Like you can't do that. It's the whole enchilada. It's everything from personal enemies to political enemies. It's all of our enemies. And how are we to relate to our enemies? 
with love. Now, let's just take a minute because this is disorienting. And part of that is because we only have one word in the English language, which sometimes is really precise and other times is really sloppy, sloppy. And it's this word love. And so we use it for everything, from I love God to I love vegan tacos or like, and every, everything. And I love both, but I, like, I, it's the same word, but I mean something else, right? So a lot of you, when you hear the word love, what comes to your mind, in particular in a city like Portland in 2017, is this idea of tolerance or the kind of vague, progressive Portland, like be nice to everybody thing. That's what comes to mind. So it's wait, love your enemies? Does that mean like tolerance, even if there's injustice or evil or violence or oppression? Um, For other people, love means like, you think of it in like a Hollywood sense. So it means feel warm, fuzzy emotions towards somebody. And you're like, is Jesus saying feel, like, like think happy thoughts about Pyongyang, is that like what Jesus is saying here or whatever? No, not at all, it's not what he's saying. The word in Greek is agape. And agape more than anything, there are all sorts of words for love in the Greek language. Agape more than anything is a love of the will. It is when you bend your will to the good of another person, even if it's ahead of your own, where you will their well-being ahead of your own, even if it comes at great cost to you. One commentator defines agape as, quote, the unconquerable benevolence, invincible goodwill. I love Scott McKnight's definition of agape. Love is a rugged commitment to be with somebody, so you're in relationship, as someone who's for that person's good, like your agenda is that person's thriving. And I love the last line, it's key, to love them unto God's formative person to partner with God, to love them into the man or woman that God created them to be all along. Meaning, listen carefully, to love your enemy is not to wink at their behavior or to tolerate it even or to act like, you know, evil or injustice or oppression or lying or cheating or manipulation or adultery or whatever is, hey, no big deal, let's be nice to each other. It's not what Jesus is saying. Often the most loving thing you can do is call out their behavior as evil. See, that is, wrong. that is evil, that is injustice, that is a lie, and even put a stop to it for them as much as for yourself, but never with violence or hate, rather with nonviolence, and even more than that, with enemy love. If not for their behavior, then for them as a fellow human being, as a fellow man or woman in the image of God. Now, how in the world do we do this? Well, um, Jesus has a few little ideas. One of the things I love about Jesus' teaching is he goes really fast from like abstract concept up at 30,000 feet to like, here's a little creative idea to take a step forward in the right direction in the week ahead. And his first idea is very simple, pray for them. And I don't think by pray for them, he means like pray that their plane goes down in a freak tornado over Southern California. Like, you know, or they're on a nose, on like a date and like their nose hair has just gone rogue and it's like, ah, like, don't think that's what Jesus has in mind. Um, He doesn't say what, I I think he means, you know, pray blessing, pray for the release of good things from God into their life. Or if there's evil, if there's oppression, if there's lying, then pray for repentance, for healing, for change, for transformation, but pray for the good of your enemy. Some of you know from experience, some of you have been hurt before, been through something really gnarly, and then when you were ready, you actually started to pray. And you know from experience that one of the best ways to deal with hate in your heart, or bitterness, or acrimony, or anger, or judgment, or hurt, is to pray over your enemy. And and rarely all at once, but over time, often there's a release of that hate a release of that anger, a release of that churning on the inside. There's often other people have a power and authority over our thinking and our feeling. And not even other people in the present, often it's other people from our past, from a year ago, from a decade ago, from a lifetime ago. We're still living back there, not here. We're still stuck and somebody else or something else from your past has a power or authority over your emotional condition. That's not the heart of Jesus. The heart of Jesus for you is freedom, to live in the moment with love for all. How in the world do you get there? Well, there's no easy answer to that. But one small little creative step is to pray. This is the way of Jesus. If you missed last week, to summarize, it's not the way of violence, uh, nor is it the way of you know, pacifism, where you're just like, you're passive, you don't do anything. 
It's where you look for an option C, a creative, nonviolent, alternative solution to fight evil and social injustice in the world. And it's not the way of hate or anger or I'm better than you. It's the way of love. But this is so foreign to us, right? Like, it's just not how we roll. We don't love our enemies. We bomb them. We call in a predator drone strike. We impose economic sanctions. Or let's bring it back down to earth. We tweet about them. We rant on Facebook. We gossip to our circle of friends. We badmouth them. We stick in a little sarcastic comment. Anything but love them. Can you imagine a more radical, hard, difficult, beautiful, healing command in all of the teachings of Jesus than love your enemy? I, for one, can't. And for those of you who are like new to the Jesus thing and you're thinking, I'm out. Like, you had me at love and lost me at enemy, right? I'm just, why in the world would I do that? Well, Jesus goes on. Take a look at 45. That, so here's why. That you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Ah, Jesus is so smart here. He's dealing now with motivation. So why should we do this or not do this? Like, what is our driving motivation? Well, there are all sorts of reasons, but there's only one here in Jesus' teaching, only one he has time for, whatever, only one that matters to him, and it's very simple, because this is what God is like. And when we love our enemy, we become more like our God that Jesus called Father. Jesus looks out at what science calls nature and what he calls creation, and he makes a very simple observation. The rain, keep in mind, he's first century Jew, so he's living in Israel, dry, arid climate, and an agrarian society. The rain was a sign of blessing. It's not that in our city at all. But in his world, it was a sign of blessing. And um, the rain falls on the evil and the good. And the sun, uh, which in Portland feels like much more of a blessing, again, agrarian society that would make your crop grow, it rises on the righteous and the unrighteous, or that can be translated the wicked. Just think about that. Case in point, here's the weather in Pyongyang today. Not bad, 76, a little rainy, but that's good for the field, good for the crop. Here's the weather in Moscow. It's actually quite nice, 85 degrees, crystal clear, sunny. Here's the weather in Raqqa, the capital of ISIS. It's a bit hot for me, but no different than LA, so a lot of people tend to like Southern California. Notice, in none of those, um, there's no tsunami on the forecast. There's no, like, freak hailstorm the size of a Volkswagen Beetle to, like, crush everyone in sight. There's no tornado, just rain and sun. What does that teach us about the heart of God? Jesus is saying that every time the sun comes up and the rain comes down, that's God loving his enemies. God is the ultimate enemy lover. And if you don't believe that, just read the story of Jesus. Here's food. Here's water. Here's life. Here is my son to die in your place. While we were still enemies, Christ died for us. And when we love our enemy, we become more like our Father. And in doing so, we heighten our intimacy with our Father. Dale Bruner, a commentator on Matthew, writes this, if we will live this countercultural way, we will come to experience God the Father in an especially intimate way. We will become God's close sons and daughters. We will become in personal experience what we are in gracious fact, members of the family of God. Now, Jesus is not done. He's just getting started. He has a whole other idea for how to love your enemy. Take a look at 46. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? He means from God. Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Oh, again, this is so smart. Jesus picks out two enemies of the Jewish people. So two, like crystal clear, bad guys in his society. 
First is tax collectors, who were the worst of the worst. Tax collectors were like the Benedict Arnolds of the day because they were Jewish, but they were in league with the empire, with the oppressor, bad news. And then pagans, and that was not like a racist comment in his day at all. All it means is uh, people that are not Jewish, people that are far from God, in particular Romans, who are immoral and idolatrous. For us, it would be, you know, the ISIS suicide bomber or the white supremacist or whatever. Here's another little idea from Jesus, just a small creative step to take. Greet them. Just say hi. Say hello. Look them in the eye. And the implication here is maybe have a coffee with them, maybe start a conversation, maybe even start a relationship. Not sure if you saw the documentary um, recently. It was in the news again this week with Daryl Davis, who's a black piano player, played with Little Richard and a bunch of other famous people. And he's in the news because uh, not that long ago, he started befriending members of the Ku Klux Klan and other white supremacists as a black man. And uh, it was scary and risky, but he just started to make friends with people. And he has this growing collection. He wants to start a museum. He has this growing collection of KKK ceremonial robes that people have turned into him after they have changed their mind through relationship with him. This is beautiful, like, you can go watch the documentaries. Beautiful, Jesus, Jesus, he cool story. What's shocking to me is all the flack that he gets from social justice advocates. Say, so you can't do that. Those people are evil, and a lot of them are. You can't reason with people like, you can't go near people like that. Do not contaminate. How dare you? And like, he actually gets flack from both sides. I think what he's doing, I, I don't know, but that sounds pretty Jesus-y to me. I think Jesus is saying that if you only love people in your nation, your ethnicity, your socioeconomic class, your political party, your denomination or church tradition, your style of music or fashion or whatever, then you're no better than the tax collector or the pagan. You're just perpetuating the tribalism that's wreaked havoc on society for thousands of years. Glenn Stassen, an ethicist from Fuller Seminary, has a great little book on the Sermon on the Mount. He writes this, loving only those who love you is the in-group selfishness of cliquishness. Read middle school and high school. Cronyism, nepotism, racism, nationalism. If we only love those who love us, listen to this. This is so prophetic for our moment right now. We see only an in-group perspective and become closed-minded to how others see things. As a result, we cannot understand our enemies' perspectives enough to deal with them effectively. We are less effective and less powerful because we do not sufficiently understand our enemies who wish us harm and so cannot do what is effective in persuading them to do what we think is right. We grow frustrated and blame them all the more. We transfer our ineffectiveness to other people whom we do not understand. This is the powerlessness of a culture of blame. Again, Jesus did the exact opposite, am I right? He crossed all sorts of social barriers to, to greet, to say hello, to eat and drink even with tax collectors and pagans. And like he gets, have you ever read the four gospels? He gets in all sorts of trouble for this. Who does he make really mad? Yeah, Pharisees, like the religious conservatives of the day are just ticked, like you do not eat with people like that. To eat with them is to approve of them, it's to like endorse, which it was not in Jesus' mind, but like you just can't do that. Now, I was thinking about this over the last week and just processing everything in our nation over the last week and just, uh, just, just processing. And with my own family and our own story, it was just a lot to like take in. And I was thinking about how, you know, we read these stories about Jesus eating with a tax collector or a prostitute or a pagan, and we just think, Jesus, you're so punk rock. Like, we just think it's so, I think it's so cool. I read these stories, and I'm just like, Jesus, this is why I like, I worship you. I'm so down. How many of you read those stories and you find it offensive? Yeah, none of you. None of you are like, you ate with a Roman tax collector? I can't, I don't know if I can believe in this Jesus, or whatever. Like, none of you think that. You all think it's rock and roll, it's so cool because you have no emotional connection, much less a trigger to a first century tax collector. But try to imagine if you were a first century Jew. That's the worst of the worst of the worst. You read about him with a pagan, you're like, oh, that's my whole city, that doesn't affect me at all, <laughs> or would it's half my church for that matter. Uh, I'm just kidding, just kidding, just kidding. Um, like it doesn't, there's no emotional trigger for us. We just think it's cool, but like let's like, I don't, let's translate and transpose or do our best attempt. I, 
Jesus is not, I don't know if Jesus would do this or not. This is just hypothetical scenario. What if you read this last week that Jesus was there last Saturday in Charleston? He was at the rally, and before, after, at some point, he invited 10 white supremacists out to share a meal at Chipotle for lunch. And they sat down and they had a conversation. How would you feel about that? How many of you would think, no, you can't do that, Jesus. Those people are evil. You, you, can't, you can't reason with them. You, you, you need to stay away. Do not contaminate yourself. You need to fight those people. You need to, you need to do whatever. You cannot. How many of you would find that offensive? My guess is some of us would. What if this morning you woke up and you're reading the New York Times and read a story about Jesus, and wow, he's in, he's in Syria right now, and he was there around a fire um, with members of ISIS, and they were sharing a meal. How would you feel about that? And once again, I, when I say that, I don't mean that I think Jesus would endorse that. Definitely not like white supremacy. He was Jewish, so I'm guessing he would not land on that side of the, you know, I don't think that's his thing. Like, he, he was Jew, a Jew, and he spent a lot of time in Africa. I don't think that would exactly be his take. Jesus was not afraid to stand up against evil and injustice and violence and oppression. He's not afraid to risk his own life. In fact, the end, he was killed because he was such a threat to the empire and to the religious establishment. I don't think he would endorse the evil. I don't think he would wink at it or nod at it. But I can't help but wonder if he would share a meal, if he would say hello, if he would start a conversation, if he would turn an enemy into a neighbor. Because Jesus' way is to love all with open, indiscriminate, generous, self-sacrificial, cross-shaped, bold, daring enemy love. Because that's what his father is like. Finally comes the line to end all lines. Take a look at the end there, 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. So for um, the week ahead, like just a little something to work on. <laughs> you know, have fun. I have that one down, but I've been following Jesus for a while now. Plus, I was homeschooled, so that helps. Um, right? No, okay. So a lot of people, some of you are thinking, wait, what? A, lo a lot of people misread this line. Listen, one, because they read it out of context as like this standalone, again, statement, rather than, listen, as the last line in a teaching on nonviolence and enemy love. That's, that's how you read it, as the last line, the climax of Jesus' teaching on nonviolence and enemy love. And two, because of that word perfect, the way that it's translated from Greek into English. So again, it's really hard to translate. The Greek word is teleos. If you're a philosophy major, um, think teleology or the telos or the end goal. That's what that word means. It means um, the end goal. It means complete. It can be translated whole, mature, adult. You've reached full development. It was used for those who come of age for an adult over against a child. In context, Jesus is saying that the end goal of your apprenticeship to him is to grow and mature into the kind of man or woman who is like God. That's what the word godly means. It means God-like. And the mark of maturity, the mark of godlikeness, if you want to plot your like, life, where am I on the journey from immaturity to maturity, from not like God very much at all to a whole lot like God, if you want to plot where you are in the spectrum, it's really easy. You just map where you stand in relation to your enemy. The less you love your enemy, the more immature you are. The more you love your enemy, the more mature you are, because for Jesus, love is the great litmus test. I think this is why so few followers of Jesus actually take this teaching seriously, because so many of us never reach this kind of maturity in our apprenticeship to Jesus. We never become the kind of people, the sons and daughters who are like our Father, who love not only our neighbor, but also our enemy. Now, we get this um, a little hint. This is the right way to read it from Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, Jesus did not speak Greek. Some of you might not know that. Um, most likely, he actually did not even speak Hebrew or maybe a little bit, but he usually, we think, spoke Aramaic. And then when um, the four Gospels were written, his teachings were translated into Greek. And it's interesting, Matthew translated his teaching here with that Greek word teleos, but Luke translated the exact same teaching, go read it, Luke chapter 6, beautiful, uh, with the Greek word oktirmanes, and um, it's the word that we translated merciful. So in Luke, in your Bible, it reads, be merciful, therefore, as your heavenly Father is merciful. 
Jesus is saying, be merciful. Love your neighbor and your enemy. Pray for them. Greet them. Maybe even if it's, not if it's dangerous or unsafe or toxic, but if it's appropriate, maybe even start a relationship with them, and in doing so, be like God. This isn't a fringe interpretation. This is how most scholars interpret that line. In short, our call, and of course, this is a lifetime thing. Some of you are like this. I'm brand new to this. I'm not even close. That's okay. But our call is to grow and mature into the kind of people who turn our enemy into our neighbor through love. Now, of course, this raises all sorts of questions. I mean, the first is like, okay, can this actually work like in the real world? And the answer is, heck yes, and you are all living proof of it. Every last one of you. I love what the writer Paul does with this teaching of Jesus in his letter to the church in Rome. Listen to this, Romans chapter five. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the what? The ungodly, those that are not like God at all. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. I just saw Dunkirk on Wednesday night, amazing film about self-sacrifice, all of that. But listen to this. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? And listen to the next line. For if while we were God's what? Enemies. We were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We were all enemies of Christ at one point. How did he win you and I over? How did you become a son or a daughter, much less a neighbor? Through violence, through hate? No. Through nonviolence, through self sacrificial, cross shaped, suffering love. He loved you and me through death into life in the kingdom of God. He made you his neighbor. That's the way of Jesus. Jesus had so many options, so many chances to take up the sword, to fight Rome, to fight violence, and just every time he just said, nope, 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 nope. Love your neighbor. What does that mean, love your enemy? And when followers of Jesus go out and do this, man, some beautiful things tend to happen. A few days ago, um, I came across this speech, and again, I just, sometimes I hesitate to read this stuff. I know I'm a white man and all of that stuff. But man, I was just, I've been reading a lot about Dr. King and the Civil Rights Movement, and I was so, the dude is just so Jesus-y at times. I was so moved by this. I just want to read it over you. Quote, to our most bitter opponents, we say, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We shall meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we shall continue to love you. We cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws because non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. Throw us in jail and we shall still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our communities at the midnight hour and beat us and leave us half dead and we shall still love you. But be ye assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. One day we shall win freedom, but not only for ourselves. We shall so appeal to your heart and conscience that we shall win you in the process, and our victory will be a double victory. That, I think, is what Jesus is all about. Now, before you get all excited, I'm like, yeah, that's amazing. Like, let me tweet that on Instagram or whatever. I just remember... Remember, Dr. King died for this. And we've come a long ways as a nation, but the last few months are living proof that we still have a long ways to go. And so on one hand, does this work? Well, on one hand, heck yeah, absolutely. You like live out the teachings of Jesus, it's a really good chance that you will break the chain of evil in the language of Tolstoy. But on the other hand, not always. You might end up like Dr. King. Or even worse, you might end up like Jesus. 
You know, often one of the main comebacks I hear to Jesus' teaching on nonviolence and enemy love is, well, just like, let's back earth to like you. Um, this just doesn't work in the real world. You do this kind of stuff, you could, you could easily end up dead. There's two problems with that. First is the assumption that violence does work. Uh, I would argue, feel free to push back on this, but that as a general rule, violence usually works in the short term, but not the long term. Instead, it feeds on its own energy. It creates more violence. History is full of examples. Whereas nonviolent enemy love usually doesn't work in the short term. There's persecution, there's abuse, there's oppression. But in the end, it is our only hope. As Yoder said, it goes with the grain of the universe. Now, whether or not you agree with that, Here's the main problem with that line of thinking. It doesn't matter if it works or not. It is the call of Jesus on all of his followers. So look down at your Bible. Does Jesus promise you that if you do this, if you reject the kind of flight or fight option, if you were here last week, of either passivism or violence, and you look for a creative alternative solution, and if you don't hate your enemy, but you actually love your enemy and pray for them and even say hello to them, does he promise you that if you do this, everything will work out awesome? No. Just follow it through to its logical conclusion. What happened to Jesus? Uh, he was arrested on a false charge as a threat to the empire. A threat to the empire? He would, like, would not go to war with the empire, yeah, but you don't say this kind of stuff. This is always a threat. I was reading about this, the Anabaptists in the 16th century just this last week, and as one historian said, the only thing in the 16th century that Catholics and Protestants could agree on was killing Anabaptists. Bizarre. All Anabaptists basically said is we want to make the Sermon on the Mount the center of our life, so we won't take an oath, which means we won't serve in the government. We won't use violence, no matter what. And uh, because of that, like, we believe in the separation of church and state. So just let us go over here and follow Jesus in community. That's all they said. Like, that's all they said. And that was such a threat to the status quo that the only thing people could think of was killing them. Now, it's the 16th century. That was kind of the answer for everything. But still... This is, why is this such a threat? Why would you go around killing people who are teaching nonviolence? Because this is so countercultural to our day and age. And if you follow Jesus, you can, now thankfully this is like so weird to teach on this from like Portland, Oregon. I'm pretty safe here. I don't even lock my car at night. <laughs> Please don't come test that theory. My point is, here's my point, and I, and I get, you can mock me, criticize me all you want. I'm here, whatever. My point is, Jesus' invitation is not to a safe, secure, middle-class life in the United States of America, but to what John Ortberg calls spiritual greatness in the divine conspiracy of sacrificial love. It's not to a life where you don't have to worry about death, or suffering, or pain, it's to a life where you're not even scared of death itself because you know what is on the other side. And the command to love your enemy, why are we taking the time on this? Because it is central to the way of Jesus. This is not like a pet theology or fringe idea or kind of off to the side. It's not ancillary. This is central. Um, prior to Constantine, if you know your church history in the fourth century, before that, love your enemy from the first three to 400 years of church history is the most quoted verse in all of the Bible by the church fathers. And this was at a time when millions of followers of Jesus, men and women and children, were dying in the Roman Colosseum or in wave after wave of persecution. It's like love, love for God, for neighbor, and even for enemy is central to what God is all about. Now again, um, as I said last week, this teaching of Jesus here raises all sorts of questions, am I right? You're smart thinking people, my guess is you have a running list. Here's a kind of short list from last week. What about self-defense, it's a great question. What about killing to save another person's life? Is that a whole other thing? What about protecting your family from a home intruder? Uh, I have three kids, I think about that all the time. What about the government? What about serving in the military? What if you're not in a role that involves killing? What about serving in the police force? What about political office? What about just war theories and that a thing? What about church history, the Old Testament? Like that's just, that's the short list to get us started. Now rather than take three years of Sunday um, teachings, the plan is to do a series of podcast Q&As over the next couple of weeks with some, with some great thinkers on the subject. Um,
some just really great people that are working out the implications of Jesus' teachings. Now, um, whatever you think of the implications of Jesus' teaching, hopefully we all agree on this. We are to love our enemies. Are we at least there if you're a follower of Jesus? Like it's right there, love your enemy. So here's two questions we need to ask before we go home. First, who are your enemies? We can start with kind of the, well, I'm an American, so ISIS and um, North Korea and whatever. Then get a little closer to home. For some of you, it's the opposing political party to your own. So it's the Republican Party or it's the Democratic Party, depending on where you're at. We have people on both sides here. For um, some people in our nation, it's the opposite color of skin, sadly. For others, it's the protester or the counter-protester, or the corrupt police officer, or the whatever. For some people, it's another gender. For some people, it's another sexual orientation. For some people, it's illegal immigration. For some people, it's, you know the list. Real or not, our country has its list, and people in our country have a list. So who for you is your enemy? And then think a little bit closer to home. Get past like the faceless group on the other side of the world. Is there somebody across the street is there somebody in your office? Is there a coworker? Is there a boss? Is there a friend or an ex-friend? Is there a family member? Is there an uncle or a mom or a dad or a grandfather? Just let, don't force anything, but let a name or a face come to mind. Second question, what are you doing to turn them into neighbors? You think, where do I even start? Just say a prayer. Maybe that's all you're ready for. Just say one you're like, can it be one sentence long? Sure, just start right where you're at. Like Jesus actually had a thing against long prayers, so you're safe, it's all good. But just start there, say a prayer. Maybe if you're ready, greet them. Now I get that you know, if it's somebody who's dangerous or toxic or abusive, or like I get it, there are some people you just can't do that. So you have to do it from a distance and it's a heart thing. Totally get that, please don't misread me. But what are you doing to turn your enemies into your neighbors? to end a really stupid story that will probably make you write me off even more, but here we go. Um, so as most of you know, I was homeschooled for just like forever, and it explains so much that's wrong with me. But I actually went to school in fifth grade for a year. I, 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 that's as long as I made it. And um, fifth grade, I was so socially awkward. Some of you are thinking that has not changed. Um, I'm not that tall now, I'm six, two and a half or something like that, but I was this tall in fifth grade, not joking. So I was just a freak of nature. I could not like walk across the hallway without falling down. I had like spent all of my life with my mom and reading Lord of the Rings. Like I had no, I was so not cool at all. Okay, I had no idea about fashion or anything. And I show up at this school, I'm in fifth grade. It's like 19, what, 91, something like that, 92. And uh, there's, this, there's this bully there by the name of Derek. Doesn't that just sound like a bad guy from the 90s? <laughs> Some of you are like, you're in your mid-30s and your name's Derek. And like, oh man, it's just like right out of Saved by the Bell or something, you know? It's like such an Zach or Derek or whatever, Slater. Um, <laughs> so 90s. So there's this kid, Derek, and he was, he, was like the, he was the bully, but he was also like the cool kid in class. Like his family had money. He like, they dropped him off in a black Camaro with tinted windows, and he had brand new Reebok pumps. Like, dude, this kid was so cool. And he made my life a living hell. It was just comber this and comber that and just ma like, and I was already, it was really bad. And so I'm like, so I go home and I'm talking to my mom about it because that's what you do. And um, what my mommy was saying was, <laughs> my mom, like at one point she's like, said something about this, like love your enemy. And she's like, you know what you need to do is have like Derek over to play one afternoon. Mom, do you not love me? You, if I go out in the backyard with Derek, I'm not coming back. Like, we live in California. There's a forest out there. I'm not coming back after. And somehow she talked me into it. And I was like, it's, I don't actually have a ton of memories from, from that, that period of my life. But, like, this one is lodged in there. And I remember Derek came over for an afternoon. I remember because we actually, like, played football, which was, if you know me, that's, like, so, that's loving your enemy right there. And I, remember, I just remember we had this afternoon together and we actually had a great time. And Derek never bothered me again. 
not once. But he became a friend. And I remember in my little fifth grade, you know, mind, like that lodged it, something like hit me. It's like one of those like, oh wait, what Jesus is saying is actually really smart moments. You ever have that? Like you all, if you grow up in the church, you know that what he's saying is, is like the moral thing, but a lot of us don't actually think that it's the best way to be human. And then we have these moments where we're like, oh wow, he's not just saying that because it's right. He's saying that because like he thought up the whole human thing and, <laughs> and he's kind of good at it. And that's actually the way to live. Now, I know it is so easy to write me off. Derek is not North Korea or ISIS or an abusive father or I get all of that. I get all of that. My point, I think, is just very simple. Like, all of us have somebody in our life, whether it's a trivial, oh, this kid is, you know, whatever, or whether it's serious or scary or dangerous. And I don't know what this means for our government. or This isn't to our government. This is for you. This is for me. You have an enemy. The odds are. The way of Jesus is for you to turn that enemy into a neighbor. Even if it costs you, even if it's scary, even if it's dangerous, maybe dangerous is not, even if it's just, I don't know. Like that's the heart of God. You don't have to do it if you don't want. It's just an invitation. But if you want to grow, if you want to mature to become like your father, if you want freedom in your heart to where you stand against injustice and evil and all of that, but you do so from a place not of hate and anger and bitterness, which our culture is just full of right now. But you stand from a place of bold, courageous, self-sacrificial, cross-shaped love. That's the call of Jesus. You do that, some really beautiful things will happen. Let's stand and pray. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of Practicing the Way a simple, beautiful way to integrate formation into your church or group. All our resources are completely free, thanks to the generosity of The Circle, a community of monthly givers who partner with us to see spiritual formation integrated into the church at large. Special thanks for this episode goes to Gideon from Virginia Beach, Virginia, Dee from Upper Marlboro, Maryland, Kaylee from Colorado Springs, Colorado, Zachary from Bettendorf, Iowa, and Lauren from Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Thank you all so much. To join the circle or learn more about running a practice in your church or community, visit practicingtheway.org.